Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, part 18 in our series on the Gospel of John. This is entitled Jesus, Bread of Heaven. Continuing with our look in recent weeks, we're going to see some of the parallels again with the ministry of Jesus and the story of the Exodus. Today, this theme is going to come out with particular clarity. Good stuff in these words we're going to be looking at today. Hey, a few things we got coming up at North Shore Vineyard. We kicked off Wild at Heart uh, yesterday with a lot of the men in our church. And that's going to still be open for anybody who wants to join that this coming Saturday, and then we're going to close it off from there. So if you're a man that would like to be a part of that, feel free to drop by. Also, the women have a study coming up the end of June on Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. You can find out information on both of these things at our website, so check it out, northshorevineyard.org. Well, let's head over to the talk, downtown Covington, North Shore Vineyard Church. Thanks for listening. We've been in a series for the, I don't know, last six months on the Gospel of John, and today we come to uh, Gospel of John Part 18, and we're looking at uh, John chapter 6, verses 25-35. And I'm just going to pick up the story. To, to set it up a little bit, Jesus has done the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with a, a, basically a sack lunch that he multiplied. And then the disciples meet Jesus walking on water in a boat out in the Sea of Galilee. And now they've come to the other side of the lake and all these people have figured out that Jesus is over there. So now the, the traveling uh, kind of woodstock of people that are trying to follow Jesus, they found him and, and now they're showing up and that's where we pick up this story. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that I grew up out in West Texas, in Midland, Texas. Do we have anybody who grew up out there? Yes. Oh, my, my, I thought I saw my mother here a little while ago. Is she here? Oh, it's too hot for her. Okay. Uh, what, what part of West Texas? Brownwood. Brownwood. All right. All right. I've got some Texas people up in here. All right. Uh, I grew up out in, in Midland, Texas, and lived out in the, in the country a little bit, which is like desert, pretty desolate land, and I didn't realize how desolate it was until I moved to Louisiana and saw all these trees, and then went back, and I'm like, 
how the heck does anybody decide to build a town out there? But one of the good things about living in West Texas is you don't get lost much. There's nothing to obscure your view. You always can see where the sun is, where the stars are. There's very rarely clouds to get in your way. Uh, so you kind of grow up with this, this sense of direction based on what you can see. Even when I moved to Dallas, Texas, when I was about 20 years old, I didn't have problems getting around, even though it was a big city, because I could always see, oh, that, that's downtown over there. I could see things. Well, when I was about 21 years old, I, I moved to Louisiana, and I, I moved to Hammond, Louisiana, and the, the family that I was initially staying with, they lived kind of out on the outskirts of Hammond, which is rural Louisiana, and I was just lost for my whole first couple of years here. And I remember asking folks in Louisiana for directions that lived around Hammond. I was like, how do I get to so-and-so's house? And this is what they would tell me. They said, oh, well, that's easy. You go down uh, this highway for a couple of miles, and then you're going to pass an old gas station that, that uh, is broken down. Now, don't turn there. <laughs> but, but about, uh, you know, uh, you, you'll pass Farmer Brown's field, and there's this big old oak tree there, and then a blacktop right after that. Turn on the blacktop. And then you'll go down about two miles and you'll pass a, a, a cow with one eye and, uh, and, 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 and a, an old dairy farm or something. And, and it, was, it was miserable. I just found myself, you know, I, I, I was afraid I was going to end up some places where I heard banjos or something because I just was, <laughs> I was lost. Uh, I've, I've gradually adapted my, um, my, my sense of direction to living in Louisiana, but it's hard to get around. We, we kind of take for granted simple things like signs, right? And things that give us direction. What are signs for? They're, they're to tell us this is the right street. This is, you're, you're close to your destination. Or a, a one-way sign. If you're driving and you see a one-way sign pointed at you, you realize I'm going the wrong way. Signs serve a purpose to give us direction to our destination. Now, it's interesting in the Gospel of John, Jesus, his miracles are referred to by, by John not just as miracles. They're not just random acts of kindness. Jesus isn't just walking around just doing good things. Everything Jesus does has a purpose, a meaning. Actually, what John calls them is signs. Signs, signs. Everywhere are signs. <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't sing that one today. Maybe we can put that in our Gospel of John musical. Um, <laughs> when Jesus turns the water into wine in, in John chapter 2, it's called a sign. When Jesus cleanses the temple, it's called a sign. When Jesus heals the, the blind man at the pool of Bethesda, it's a sign. When he, when he multiplies the loaves and fishes, it's a sign. What do signs do? They point us somewhere. Problem is, a lot of people get hung up on the signs. They camp out at the signs. This is what it's all about. No, the signs were meant to point us towards the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the King. They're not just random good things. The, the, the problem is, though, many people, we, we miss it. We get hung up on that. Actually, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the Pharisees, they knew the Bible very well, but they, they didn't see that it was all pointing to Jesus. It was all pointing, it was going somewhere. It was a story that was going somewhere. If, if I could tell Christians one thing that will help you, that would help the church in America tremendously, 
when it comes to reading the Bible, and we talked about this in our Bible reading class a few months ago, is we have to learn how to read the Old Testament the way the disciples read the Old Testament. How did the disciples read the Old Testament? They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They were immersed in it. They grew up learning about the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the Psalms. That was their world. But when Jesus comes along, they have to reconfigure their whole idea of what the Old Testament is. they got to look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so when you read Paul, Paul quotes the Old Testament all the time. But he quotes it in light of what Jesus has done. If you read the Old Testament without Jesus, without the lens of Jesus, you're going to come up with some scary things. I heard of a a pastor recently who, uh, in Kansas, a few weeks ago, he prayed a prayer at one of these gatherings where people showed up, and he prayed against a a certain politician. And he prayed from the Psalms. He prayed a curse on him, that that your children would be cursed with with barrenness, and, and that everything would go bad for your house. He prayed that. He was praying a prayer from the Psalms, from the Bible. Is that okay? No. Not if you follow Jesus. Because did we ever see Jesus praying those kinds of prayers? Did we ever see Jesus using the Psalms that way? No. We saw Jesus praying for his enemies, saying, bless those who curse you. If you want to learn something about the Old Testament, we've got to see that that in light of Jesus Christ, he's the fulfillment. He's where the whole story was going. The whole story finds its fulfillment in him. And so if you see things sometimes that are confusing, you've got to match it up against Jesus Christ, the word of God. Because if you want to know what... God looks like, it looks like Jesus. If you want to know what the Word of God looks like, it looks like Jesus. We've got to follow the signs to where their destination is pointing. What we see in this miracle, Jesus has has fed all these people in an amazing way, but they failed to see that it was a sign that was pointing to the reality of who he was. They were showing up for, hey man, we'd like some more of that bread and fish, man. That was pretty hot. All you can eat buffet. (laughs) I I even had some to-go containers I took home, and that was great. Well, as I put in your uh, outline, um, our our, our physical hunger, in a way, is an indicator of our spiritual hunger. I've been mentioning over the past few weeks that this, this section of John in particular, but much of the Gospel of John has parallels, resonances with the book of Exodus, with the Exodus story. The Exodus story is about the children of Israel going from slavery in Egypt on their way through the wilderness to the promised land. So the Exodus is that period where God is taking them from slavery to their promised land. And I, I find this interesting in Deuteronomy 8.2.5. It says this, now, this is after the, the, the children of Israel have, have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God tells them, enlightens them on some of the experience. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that people do not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They're getting ready to go into the promised land now after wandering in the desert all this time. And God says, look, I want to I fill you in on, on what this whole manna thing was about. Now, if you've never heard of manna, it, it's this stuff. It actually, the Hebrew, mean, Hebrew word means, what is it? 
<laughs> so when they step out into the wilderness, God says, I've got this way to feed you. Go, go gather this food that's going to appear on the ground in the morning. And so they grabbed a bunch of it and they looked down and said, what is it? <laughs> it's manna. It's, it's this stuff like, like bread. And, and you could do all kinds of things with it. You could make, you know, manna tortillas and uh, manna enchiladas and manna burgers. <laughs> manna gumbo. <laughs> Boiled manna. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about this manna is that you, you couldn't make groceries for the week, as they'd say in New Orleans. You couldn't. You couldn't just get enough to get you down the road because it would spoil after one day. You could only get enough for that day. We don't like that kind of arrangement with God, do we? I mean, most of our world is about getting your, getting, you, you want to work hard for 30 or 40 years so you can retire and do nothing and, and have the, the you know, last 20 or 30 years of your life set and you don't have to do anything. That's kind of the way we think. We kind of like to save up stuff. We like to make sure that everything's covered. And God said, no, the way I'm going to feed you, you got to get it every day and you can only get enough for that day or it's going to spoil. And so when God's getting ready to take him into the promised land, he said, and this is why I did all that, to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is God saying? He said, look, your problem, the children of Israel, they had been in slavery for 400 years. 400 years. Can you imagine what that would do to your mentality, your psychology as a people? Can you men- imagine how beat down you would feel if, if your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, if they'd all been slaves, you would just think, my well-being, my sustenance, it, it's all tied to the economy of Egypt. I've just got to make another good brick and another one. Just keep my head down, don't rock the boat, and Egypt will take care of me. And God takes him out of that and says, no, your well-being is not tied to the economy of Egypt. It's tied to your relationship with me. And you're going to have to come to me every day. God was, God was breaking their mentality. I, I believe this, this manna thing was, a, was a, a part of their spiritual formation. God was taking that old slavery mindset and breaking it off of them and teaching them about a life based on their relationship with him, their, the, the freedom that exists in coming to God day after day. G.K. Chesterton, famous author, uh, late 1800s, wrote this. He says, every time a man knocks on the brothel door he is really knocking for god you know our our appetites our desires they're given to us by god okay you know a lot of people think that we get scared by our desires because they're, they're, they are kind of crazy whether it's a sexual desire or a you know desire for food i'm scared by my desire for food sometimes and uh, <laughs> uh but we have these, these things that, that often indicate our, our spiritual desire. And we find people many times looking to a relationship with a woman or a man, trying to, to, to feed this thing that only God can fill. Or looking to a substance like alcohol or pornography, looking for, for an intimacy that can only happen with God. Jesus 
in this miracle, he's, he's trying to show people you don't live by bread alone. Even the bread that comes from God, it's, it's supposed to draw you into a relationship with God. See, a lot of people want to say that if you follow God, you're just going to have everything taken care of and, and, and he just wants to just keep on blessing you. That's not the point. The point is that, that, that when God does bless you, that it draws you into deeper relationship with him. That you don't make an idol of your own desire, your own stuff, but that you come into greater knowledge of him. So what's interesting in this passage is, uh, <laughs> number one, the, 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 these people out in the desert, they're like, you know, having this dialogue with Jesus, and, and they're saying, well, okay, well, show us a sign. And Jesus is like, you already got the sign. It was the bread thing, right? <laughs> Well, okay, well, what do we need to do to do the works of God then? If that was the sign, what do we need to do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, okay, I'm going to make it really clear. That sign was pointing to this reality. If you want to do the works of God, the works of God are believing in Jesus. The work of God is believing in Jesus. But understand, when Jesus says that, he's not just saying that you have the right answer to the test. I think a lot of times in in our modern world, we kind of think of believing in Jesus as when I die, I'm going to go up to the pearly gates and St. Peter's going to be there and he's going to give me a little test, right? And and we all know Jesus is the answer, right? So you just say Jesus and, and they let you into heaven. And that's not what Jesus is getting. When Jesus says, believing in me is the work of God, he's not saying, um, you know, just intellectually believing that he's the son of God. He's saying, believe that I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, and start ordering your life around that. You know, James, the brother of Jesus, would later write in James 2, 18 through 19, he says this, Some, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Believing that there's a God, that's not enough. Just moving from the atheist camp into, I believe in a God, or even I believe in Jesus. That's not enough. That's not what Jesus is looking for. Because the devils, the, the demons, they believe in God. But how does it affect their existence? It doesn't. Jesus isn't looking for people who merely give mental assent to the fact that he's Lord, but people who will come under his lordship. People, if we're keeping with the analogy, who will follow Jesus into the new exodus. Jesus is starting a new exodus. He's leading a new group of people through the wilderness. It's not enough to know the answer for the test. It's how does that affect your life? I find that our enemy, oftentimes the, one of the ways that he attacks us the most is through the point of our desire. Have you ever found that in your own life? We, we often think of the enemy coming, you know, dressed up in red with horns and, you know, looking like a, a certain evil kind of thing. But, but many times the enemy tempts us at the point of our desire and he tries to twist that. Ephesians 6, 2 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of, dark, of, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I believe there are God-given things in each of us that, that, that like, like sexuality, 
that's a gift from God. It's not something that has to be denied, but it has to be lived out in the context of the way God intended for it to be, to experience the, the joy and the fulfillment in that area, just like love and relationships and food and whatever else. These desires in themselves aren't bad. A lot of people try to say, oh, well, it's all bad. You just need to kind of deny it. No, but it needs to be lived out in the right context. I want to look at three, three temptations, three ways our enemy tries to get at us. The first one is lust. You know, it's, it, it's sad when you look at the uh, pornography industry that has sprung up uh, around the Internet in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I, I've, I've watched some documentaries on people who've come out of that industry. And this one lady, she, she had been right in the middle of all that stuff. And she just said, it, it, the stuff you see on, on this side of the screen, it's a lot different than what goes on back there. She's like, you don't understand the amount of abuse that happens to women and men. The degrading, the dehumanizing, it's, it's revolting. And many of these people have simply gotten into the pornography industry really just trying to pay their bills. Girls in college who are just trying to, to pay rent. I'm just going to do this one time. Surely it, it won't mess things up. And they don't realize the web that the enemy is trying to get them into. But those are just the ones who choose it. You realize that so much of that stuff out there is the product of sex trafficking. People who are, are made slaves brought in to do these acts for the gratifications of others they will never see. And they don't, they don't even get money. They just get abused, violated over and over. But it's not just the ones on that side of the screen. It's, it's the folks on the viewing side of the screen. You know, the, they're starting to realize that, that addiction to Internet pornography is as strong as addiction to heroin or cocaine. And what makes it even harder is it's so accessible. You don't have to go to the bad part of town to, to you know, find a drug dealer, someone who can uh, sell you something. Many times it's right in the palm of your hand, on your phone, uh, on your television. Nobody has to know. But what it does, it begins to not just enslave the person who's doing it, but it enslaves you, changes you, alters your brain. That's the enemy coming in at the point of your desire and trying to twist that up so he can enslave you. Jesus wants to free that desire so you could experience sexuality the way he intended it. Another one is greed. You know, I put a quote in here by a guy that, uh, Chris Lowney, who was a Jesuit priest who became the, one of the VPs of Morgan Stanley, he wrote this, inordinate attachments fog one's visions. I might have first pursued a lucrative job so that I could provide for my family, but somewhere along the line, money itself became my goal and my family became a neglected second. The end became confused with the means. It, it, It takes no rocket scientist to look around and see that our world is coming apart at the seams because of greed in the financial industry, in the government, and, and even on a personal level. 
Greed is, is, is not being content with what we have, but, but always wanting more, always trying to get more. As, as he's saying, you might have started that job just to provide for your family, so, but the enemy comes in and takes over that desire to, to, to provide for your family begins to twist it. You got to have more. I just need a little bit more stuff. I just need a, a little bit more. You find pretty soon that you're, you're worshiping the idol of greed. Your desire has become an idol. The third one is power. This is, this is one we, we, we rarely walk with any self-awareness about in Christianity. You know, what's interesting in this passage, right after Jesus fed the 5,000. It says that they wanted to make him into a king right there on the spot. Now, Jesus came to be king. Why the moment when they see what he's done and they try to make him king, why does Jesus run away? Why does he hide from them? Because Jesus knew that they were going to kind of try to make him into the kind of a king that they were familiar with, the kind of king who lords over his subjects, the kind of king that enforces his will through domination and violence, the kind of king that, that orders his subjects around with a sword, and Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's the kind of king whose kingdom comes in love and humility and forgiveness and laying one's life down. Now, I, I run into people all the time that are, so afraid of our government right now. And, and, and I'm not a big fan of our government right now either. I mean, whether it's Democrat version or the Republican, you know, I, it's, it's, it's all pretty messed up, it seems like. But there are people who are so afraid of certain politicians. And, and I, I have to say, you know, the New Testament, who was the Caesar doing, during most of the New Testament? guy named Nero. If you ever want to read about a nut job, read about Nero. <laughs> in fact, there's, there's many Bible scholars who believe when it talks about the Antichrist in, in Revelations that that was talking about Nero. He's a bad, bad dude. Paul was imprisoned under the realm of Nero. But do we ever see Paul or Jesus or Peter, do we ever see any of these people trying to fight against the government of Rome? Do we ever see them saying, we're Christians and we have the right to display the Ten Commandments on the walls of the courthouse. We have the right to pray. No. They didn't fight with Rome. They just kept following Jesus right where they're at. Jesus said that the kingdom of God, it's going to be like, like yeast going through a loaf. You may not even uh, understand what's going on. You can't see it, but you see the effects of it. And that's how Christianity spread in the first three centuries. It, it spread all over the Roman Empire when the Christians were the most marginalized group on planet Earth who made up pretty much of the poor, the outcast, the ones who had no power, no wealth, no money, and yet it spread all over the known world at that time, when they didn't have anything going for them except God. We would do ourselves to, uh, to, to remind ourselves right now that no matter the outcome of the election, no matter which, which club you might be in on that, that our hope isn't in Obama or Mitt Romney or the American government. It's not in any of that. Our hope is in King Jesus. You can shout me down now. Our hope is in King Jesus. 
And, and as much as you may have opinions about certain, certain political things or economic things, that's fine. But ultimately, put your hope not in that stuff, but in King Jesus. Let not that stuff distract you from the simplicity of following Jesus Christ. That's another one of those temptations that we can't see it. I know in most of my life growing up, I've seen the church so attached to political things. And I don't think that's done the church any good. In fact, I think it's probably kept a lot of people in my generation and the upcoming generation away from Christ because they think that it's a political party. It's not. Jesus is not about our political things. He's got his own kingdom. And he's calling us to step into that, to put our hope, our trust in that. We need to pay attention to these desires that the enemy wants to exploit. And sometimes he comes with, with the, the best of, of uh, ideas. Sometimes he doesn't look like the devil at all. Sometimes it, it looks perfectly great. We need to understand, even when they wanted to make Jesus king, even though Jesus came to be king, he ran away from them because he knew what was in their hearts. They weren't looking for the kind of king that Jesus wanted to be, and they would find that out very soon when he was crucified. The bread that Jesus gives us is himself, he's it. He's what all these things point to. I want to read something from Matthew 6.25, which is no doubt a a parallel with, with some of what John records. Jesus speaking, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, and about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. So if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, this is the key. If you want to avoid the idolatry of desire, it's this. You seek God's kingdom first. Because if you're seeking anything else before God, whether it's a relationship with a woman, whether it's gratifying your own desires, whether it's food or clothes or a house or a reputation or fame, if you're seeking any of that apart from God, it's going to be an idol. You will be crushed and bad things will happen. But if we come to Jesus, as he said, as our daily bread, if we recognize that he's the one, then the things that God brings into our life, they won't hold us. Your house, your car, your, your, your stuff, it won't rule you anymore. Who wants some of that? I don't know why shot me down on that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I kind of like, you know, wanted the 
more stuff kind of thing. <laughs> this morning, we're going to, to close by uh, having a time of worship together. And in this time of worship, uh, we're going to take communion at, at, on, on the second song. And um, I'll notify you when we get there. But, but th- this, this morning, we're going to close by remembering that Jesus is our daily bread and that the work of God is believing in him, not just giving mental assent, but giving our lives to him. So let's do that in this moment. Why don't you stand? There's a longing in my soul for you. A desperate yearning deep within time.